0: Hey, Vince
1: McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother.
0: You may be right, I may be crazy about the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my friend Billy Joel for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. Welcome to stick to wrestling. Give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we'll give you a raw bone podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there. And it is the people's podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm retiring that last remark. I was watching some AWA wrestling a couple of months ago and Rod Trongard could not go through one single match without Stating that the AWA was the major league of professional wrestling, where clearly it was not at this point. This was like 87, where it was like nothing but, you know, guys that weren't that good and WWF miscast like Bob Orton Jr. and Adrian Adonis. So, like I said, I thought it was pie in the face crazy, and I'm going to retire that. Thanks for enjoying it. Follow me on Twitter. If you want, just put in the name John McAdam. Follow the guy who has guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. I mostly stick to wrestling on that. I'm usually good at throwing out a lot of cool wrestling retweets out there. Also, you want to join our Facebook group. Just go into Facebook, type in Stick to Wrestling, and it will come up. Over 1,000 members and a lot of good wrestling conversation. I want to thank Lance O'Donnell for donating to the show, and if you would like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, uh, my PayPal is prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. donation is too small throw me five bucks if you want to certainly no donation is too big and with that i want to bring on our guest this week mr brett nicholas who was on recently and did a really good job brent thanks for returning
1: That's good to be here. I I figured it was inevitable since my first appearance. We just discussed Trish and her barking like a dog. This is the sequel.
0: Ah, that's right. I didn't even think of that. Vince McMahon is going to get his comeuppance on WrestleMania X7, except he totally didn't. But we are going to be talking WrestleMania X7. Uh, The 20th anniversary for that event is coming up. And my God, that makes me feel old. That is the midpoint. Between now and me being 15 years old, today is the midpoint between WrestleMania X7 and me being 75 years old if I make it. I hope I do. All right. But let's talk about some recent news. This past week, before we were recording, I lost WWE Network. When your subscription ran, ran out, like you're done with it, everything is moving to Peacock TV. What were your general thoughts on, I mean, we've had it for seven years. What were your your general thoughts on what is soon going to be the former WWE Network?
1: You know, I was a big fan. I wish there was more classic content put up, especially for my taste would be a lot more of the syndicated 80s WWF stuff that I grew up on. But when you look at the price for all the content that you got, it was an amazing deal. It, it really was. It was a staggering deal. I mean, ten dollars a month for not
0: only like all of the current pay-per-views. It used to be sixty dollars just to order WrestleMania, sixty dollars to order the Royal Rumble. You get that for nine ninety nine, and
1: now you're getting that for four ninety nine a month on Peacock. Yeah, but there's some uh, caveats with that so far in the Peacock, from what I understand. I was just talking to somebody right before we went on the air here, and I guess the ads are real heavy yes. on the broadcast, and another big issue is there's some missing content, and I don't mean that they're going to take a while to port everything over, which is a known issue, but I guess they said they put up all the WrestleManias, and WrestleMania six is a big missing one and people are speculating whether it's cause Piper had the half and half black and white face. Uh. If they're censoring content with, with wrestling and we know that can go down a very dangerous road. So I'm not particularly optimistic. And, and the other thing they're doing is they're putting them up as seasons. So it'll say like season 32 for a Royal rumble instead of Royal rumble, 2017 or whatever. Right. And it's just like it's it's they, they took away a bunch of functions like the search functions or the markers on the pay-per-views where you could jump from match to match. It just seems like Vince took a quick buck and he's really destroying, in my opinion, the goodwill. And the WWE Network was one of the few things that WWE had goodwill with the fans. So we'll see in five and ten years that this was a big misstep for a quick buck. Yeah, and, if, well, you gave me
0: a lot to chew on there. There are a ton of commercials on Peacock. I mean, I rewatched WrestleMania X7 on Peacock, and the ad-free version is another $5, and they have shaken that extra $5 out of me. I will soon be upgrading because, I mean, there's were, they were just a ton of ads, and I'm talking about, you know, I'm watching WrestleMania X7 at the same time where I'm watching the NCAA basketball tournament and the commercials for the tournament were nothing compared to what Peacock was
1: throwing at us. Oh, geez, that's I have not I have not signed up yet myself, so I watched my WrestleMania X7 on DVD because I have the WrestleMania collection. Nice.
0: Yeah. I, I did hear from someone on Twitter that there's an ECW show up. I don't know which one it was, but supposedly uh, my old pal, Joel Gertner, throughout this promo that was insane like next level x-rated whatever and the thought process is okay well if this got on maybe some other stuff will get on but i i don't know what the interview was about like maybe they're they're saying okay we're fine with this sort of offensive content but not okay with piper painting himself half white half black
1: Yeah, I mean, if they're going to worry about racial content or if they're going to worry about something like, I hate to call out Piper again since he's a favorite of mine, but the old Adonis stuff or the fans chanting some of the things they did with the Beverly Brothers or with Johnny B. Bad or whatever, that's a really dark road to go down and a lot of content would be in danger. I, I mean, well, first of all, let me
0: say this. Lanny Poffo and the Beverly brothers, I thought were an absolute riot. I loved that act. But number two, I mean, you're right. I mean, it, it's just a way different world in, you know, 2021 than it was in the 80s. My God. And, you know, some of that stuff is, is, is considered offensive now. And, you're, you know, you're right. I just wonder if, you know, there are certain things like, okay, whatever Gertner said, we're fine with it, but, you know, we're not okay with racially uh, sensitive stuff.
1: Definitely. There was, there was some promos in 1982, 83 WCCW world-class that, I mean, calling out those Mexicans and I'm just rolling my eyes like, oh boy, (laughs) it's it's rough stuff. And then we get to the imagery of the Freebirds. Like, is that all
0: going to completely go away or are we collectively adult enough to say, okay, it was 1983. They had, they meant something different by that. Can we
1: just not go crazy? But you, you know what, Michael Hayes did wear his Confederate flag cape in the WrestleMania 17. Did huh. you notice that? I did not notice that he did, and there was a Confederate flag in the crowd, which you know these days would never get past the entrance; they would <laughs> confiscate that.
0: Yeah. Wow. No, you know what? I'm I'm so used to seeing Michael Hayes in that regalia that it, you know I'm, I'm blind to it. You know, one thing, speaking of Michael Hayes, one thing that was disappointing to me about WWE Network, like, I was very excited when I saw that the entire season of world-class championship wrestling from the year 1982 was going up, because I had never seen it before, or at least I'd seen very little of it, and, you know, the after mags did not cover it, so it was going to be like territory wrestling, from the old days that I'd never seen before, and it absolutely stunk. It was just
1: not a good wrestling show. I, I agree. I, I agree. It was such a tiny roster, and I think that hurt to a degree too. And then you had guys like Al Madrill and Checkmate and being run out there every week. So Jose Lothario, who looked about a hundred even back then. Mm-hmm. I mean. If it wasn't Devon Eric's or the Freebirds or Chris Adams, there wasn't a whole lot there. And even with Devon Eric's, you had the issue with them being so dominant. I mean, they never got their comeuppance. They never, you know, it always seemed like they came out on top no matter what. Even if they lost the match, they got their heat back. There, there wasn't a vulnerability about Devon Eric's that there was like 1985 Hulk Hogan, in my opinion. No, I have always taken that
0: opinion. I mean, it's the old formula, like a Spider-Man movie. Like at some point, you're like, "Oh no, Spider-Man's in trouble," and then he makes his big comeback. Fun so, Eric's were never in trouble.
1: No, they they, they weren't. And yeah, it, it it worked down there. I mean, man, those crowds were rabid for those three, just rabid. They, they
0: were. And speaking of, well, we're gonna get into rabid crowds soon because the WWF crowds were absolutely rabid in 2000. One, But one other problem I had with WWE Network and preparing for this show, I watched a month's worth of the Smackdowns and Raws that happened prior to WrestleMania X7. And WWE Network would at bare minimum crash like about every 30 minutes, sometimes every 10 minutes. And I mean, I would be watching the show and all of a sudden I would hear this boop boop noise and I'd be back to my main screen on my Roku. It's like literally a 20 or 25 step process to get back to the show that I was watching and then try to figure out where I was in the middle of that show. So really? hopefully Peacock won't do that to me.
1: I, see, I didn't have much problem. Uh, now, in all honesty, I stopped having to network back in October. I got fed up with Vince and I wasn't watching anything new. And so Um, But previously that I did watch it through my Roku and I wasn't having any issues with crashes. So I'm interested if that's, is that something that's gone on a long time or is that something that was newer? It always happened, but it
0: happened rarely. Like I would say once out of every five shows I would watch, it would crash, but now it was crashing, you know, over the past month, it was crashing multiple times per show. So maybe it has something to do with, you know, the network being discontinued, or maybe it's just something on my end, but yeah, you know, I'd be in the middle of watching that SmackDown, you know, the week before WrestleMania
1: and I'd have to reload the thing four or five times. Oh, wow. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. It kind of takes the, takes you out of the moment doing that. (laughs) Totally. But I, I,
0: I did it and I watched WrestleMania X seven twice over the past, like 10 days. So I, I feel like we're ready. Let's try to take everyone back to March, 2001. So much was going on in the wrestling business. Uh, Brett, we talked a little bit about this before the show started. WCW is in the midst of being sold. And one great thing that was happening back in March 2001 is Monday through Friday, Dave Meltzer had his IATA show on. Now, I should also credit Brian Alvarez, too. He was a big part of the show. And they would give us Monday through Friday daily updates on what was going on. And there was such a thing as what went on Tuesday was completely negated by Wednesday. It was that fluid.
1: Yeah, it's, I, I wasn't listening to Melter show, but I was on the uh, old AOL grandstand boards. Yes, ah, AOL, yes. I remember that.
0: I and, was on those.
1: Oh, well, you might've, have, might've have remembered me back then. I was quite a uh, poster. And I mean, we were just talking by the hour about what rumor was going on and so-and-so is going to buy this and WCW is going to be on this channel and blah, 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 blah. And it was just, it, it was big. I mean, it was constant speculation every hour of the day, seven days a week. Yeah. And I remember one day,
0: I forget which day of the week it was. I mean, we went from, you know, Jerry Jarrett is trying to buy WCW, but he's trying to buy it in installments which means that, you know, Turner might not get all of his money. Bischoff was trying to put together a real cash value for it, although at a much lower price. Vince McMahon was interested. And then the day came where someone I had never heard of at the time, his name was Jamie Kellner. He was in charge of programming for everything under Turner AOL, and he just decided, bang, WCW programming is canceled. This is the last week of it. I just remember getting that news and being like,
1: what? And it killed the value there was without the TV slot Mm -hmm. there did the TV time. There was no value there. There really wasn't. Um, and with all of the contracts that were involved and Vince McMahon managed to buy without having to take on some of the bigger contracts, but when guys like Jarrett and, Bischoff were talking about, my understanding is they were going to be taking a lot of those contracts, not Hulk yep. Hogan, but so that was a big expense. And if you didn't have a TV slot, a TV time, then there wasn't really much there. And it's ECW found out, the other company that stopped in January. I think their last show was like January seventh or something. Um, and they had stopped doing TV by that point. They had looked in trying to find TV all over the place, and all they could find was the old uh sports network offering them a 30 minute show Monday through Friday. You can't do a wrestling show 30 minutes at a time, Monday through Friday and risk being preempted for, you know, baseball games or whatever else they're showing. That's just impossible to run a show. And Heyman had to turn it down because he, he said, there's no way to to run a coherent wrestling company in that format.
0: And that that's important too, because I mean, this is what everyone was saying 20 years ago. If ECW couldn't get an outlet, could WCW get an outlet? Now, WCW had a much more major league brand than ECW, but at the same time, and this kind of confused me at the time, wrestling was red hot. Raw was red hot. Nitro was still doing respectable ratings compared to other shows on cable. They were doing good ratings compared to other shows on cable. SmackDown was doing really good ratings. Thunder was doing respectable ratings. But yet, it's not always just about ratings. It's about ad revenue. And wrestling just didn't generate a lot of ad
1: revenue, especially per uh, viewer. It it didn't. And you, you saw that with the types of advertisements that were on Nitro and Raw it was almost exclusively video games and Skittles and Starburst. And if you actually watch um, WWE or AEW today and you look at their advertisers, they're actually a higher quality of advertiser now than there was in during the Monday Night War era, even though the ratings are much, much, much less. Because the um, demos are better now and the... What's the word I'm looking for? The uh, income levels of the fans are, are there's not the stigma now that there was. And because wrestling such a niche product and everything is a niche product now, it's the advertisers are looking for that pure audience as opposed to a larger audience of higher income people they think are going to buy stuff. Now it's like, well, wrestling has an 18 to 49 male audience and we need that audience. And it's one of the few places we can get it. So they advertise AEW or WWE. That wasn't as much the case back in 2001. Oh, I mean, when you were talking about
0: that, you're, and I mean, things changed a lot prior to 2001. I mean, growing up watching wrestling on channel 56 at 11 in the morning, I mean, we're talking bottom of the barrel commercials like, OK, are you're desperate for a job, right? Here's this number. You know, here's, here's <laughs> where you can go to learn how to be a computer tech person or here's a nursing school number like that sort of stuff. It was nuts. Oh, and, and cheap jewelry, of course. Just, you know, really low, low rent stuff. Ginsu knives. Yes, that, that <laughs> sort of thing. Where, you know, if, if someone calls and, and orders one of these things, the wrestling promotion gets a cut of it. Like this is, you know, really bottom of the barrel stuff. And and I'm, I was not surprised to learn that a lot of the promotion actually had to pay for the TV time that by 84, Vince was paying everyone for TV
1: time. Well, that, yeah, that's a very underrated part of what killed the territories. People want to talk about Vince taking talent. People want to talk about higher production values. But when Vince went to all these TV stations and he said, I'll pay you this amount of money for your TV time as opposed to the uh, local promotion, either getting the time for free and the station just taking the ad revenue or them paying very minimal costs, Vince undercut them by offering to pay more. And a lot of those TV stations either switched over to WWF or they went back to the territories and said, Hey, you got to pay us more. And that really cut into the bottom line and hurt big time.
0: Big time. I think that is a a very underrated uh, aspect of why Vince won the wrestling war. And basically by the end of 85, it looked like he had won it conclusively.
1: Yeah, it, it did. And then, you know, Jim Crockett promotions discovered some money, which I don't know that they ever really had when you start to look at the books and the horror stories about how much debt they had before Turner bought them out. But they certainly tried to compete on a level of money compared to Vince. And so they they looked like competition. They were running pay-per-views. They were running shows in a lot of markets some of them very unsuccessfully mind you when they went into enemy territory if you will and they also had a talent level to look like they were competing with vince but when you look at the bottom line the actual profits versus the costs crockett was not competing they were competing on screen but off screen they were bleeding red ink big time I mean, that's what I was saying when WCW got kicked off of the
0: Turner Networks. ECW had tried really hard to get a television outlet, and they couldn't. And, you know, wrestling was red hot, and I couldn't figure out why. it had, Of course, it had something to do with, you know, uh, wrestling revenue as opposed to tennis revenue uh, as far as, like, bringing in costs. But still, you know, it's you're still getting good ratings with it. Like, I don't understand how WCW never got on anything. And this is with Vince McMahon owning it. Now they, they could not get a television outlet and it was not for a lack of trying on the WWF's part.
1: Yeah. And I think it was mostly stigma. I mean, I don't know if you've read the nitro book. Yes, I have out. a fantastic book about some backstage details about like the accounting and the ad side. And they really discussed that, the, how some of the ad people had such a problem reaching out to these advertisers because there was a stigma even if they could show them numbers that said hey these are the same people watching nascar and you advertise on nascar they're the same people watching you know another program there was such a stigma and then the other thing you had and again this was kind of discussed in the nitro book is you had all these cable channels that wanted to brand themselves they wanted to and wrestling didn't fit their brand they didn't want to be a all-encompassing entertainment channel like usa which is where wwf was kind of lucky in that they wanted to be the comedy channel or the channel for women you know it was all about branding and wrestling just didn't fit a lot into that
0: and it's funny because we were talking about so much is happening during this time frame not long after the wwf went off of usa network and went into a new channel called what was it? The national network well, that oozes of charisma, but wait, the national network turns into spike TV, which is supposed to be, you know, the, the macho TV station for guys. Now, I'm, I'm certain they had the spike move in mind when they
1: obtained WWF programming. It, it was, and you know, what's really funny about that is everybody joked before they switched off the USA that, Oh, you know, people are going to not be able to find the new channel. Ratings, actually, you can look at the ratings from when they were on USA to the very first show on TNN, and there was a distinct drop. And I don't think it was so much people couldn't find the channel on their guide. I think it was, it lost a lot of casuals because USA was always in the most basic of basic packages, and it was right up front on your cable dial. You know, it's one of the very first things you found after your local channels. Whereas this TNN, before it became TNN, it was a music channel, country music. Yep. And so it was way up there. And probably if it wasn't way up in high numbers, it was mixed in with MTV and VH1. And there literally seemed to be an issue with people finding the channel because ratings really dropped from USA to TNN. And it was instantaneous. And it stayed that way. Yeah, it went from the Nashville network,
0: which at one point was... They invited Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett, I think it was, to talk to them about being on. And Lawler walks in, and the executive says, okay, well, I'll I'll listen to your pitch, but we're not putting wrestling on this network. Well, And Lawler's like, well, why am I pitching you then? See ya. And so we've gone (laughs) from that to the the national network, and now it's going to be Spike TV. So another big change coming up for the WWF. Right now, let's talk a little WrestleMania X7. I was so looking forward to this show and we'll go into this as we go on, but I was really looking forward to it. They had a lot of good angles, a lot of good storylines coming in and dang, this thing delivered. This was a great
1: pay-per-view. This was along with WrestleMania three, the absolute two peaks of my fandom as a wrestling fan, you know, WrestleMania three peaked when I was younger and WrestleMania 17 peaked when I was an adult and just everything came together. And then after WrestleMania 17, like a lot of people, I kind of started to drop off. And by 2006, I wasn't watching anything current anymore.
0: Yeah, it was. And your experience is is not unique because WrestleMania three was the absolute peak of the Hogan era. WrestleMania 17 was the absolute peak of the attitude era.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's why it's such an amazing show, is because you can also see the changing of the guard, if you will. You had a couple of matches, which we'll get into later, that were the very much the Monday Night War brawling through the crowd, main event WWF style. But then you had a couple of matches in Regal and Jericho and Benoit and Kurt Angle that kind of started the newer style that they were transitioning into a more technical style for some of the smaller guys that were coming in. And there was a lot less brawling in the crowd. And so you saw those two things going on on that same show here with WrestleMania 17 as they were going to go transition into, I guess what they call the ruthless aggression era. Yeah. (laughs) And you're right. That's actually a really good point though, because you
0: had that, you know, that Chris Benoit versus Kurt angle match, which was way different than what
1: they had been doing, but that's what they were going towards in the future. It it was a a safer style in some ways, and in some ways it wasn't. That's what's interesting about it. When done a certain way, the brawling style can actually be safer because you're not taking the bumps that Angle and Benoit took, and we all know what happened to both of them. Benoit being the far worse story, but Angle having a lot of problems with painkillers and his own physical well-being. But they're also... WWF was starting to move to a removal of all the, the headshots and the chairs. And the and it, I think it was a safety issue, too, because if you watch those matches where Undertaker and Triple H or Austin Rock are moving through the crowd, it feels unsettling to me a little bit. Just watching the fans getting in the way and the security just shoving them. And I, I just kept it in the back of my mind thinking, man, somebody's going to trip. They're going to break an ankle. They're going they, you don't see that kind of thing. And you didn't for, they, they got rid of that brawling through the crowd because I think it really was a safety issue for the crowd and the wrestlers.
0: Yeah. I mean, wrestling crowds, they, they weren't as crazy as they were in the seventies or eighties, but it just takes one idiot with a, a, you know, some kind of a weapon to really hurt someone. And, and, you know, that goes on in the real world. I mean, not long before WrestleMania X seven, I mean, I'm not long. I'm saying like five or six years Someone climbed into a tennis court and stabbed Monica Celis So there's dangerous people out there.
1: And there still are. I mean, there's, I don't remember exactly what, but an AEW show Moxley was doing his entrance through the crowd and somebody like jumped at him. And so now they have that when he does his entrance through the crowd, they have it secured off. You just never know what, what can happen. And that's, that's why I think they got rid of that. I mean, the amount of, staff that they had event staff at WrestleMania 17. You see all those yellow coats. It, it was insane. I'm looking at all of those coats and thinking, how much did they pay for event staff at this? Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, like I said, it's, it was, it was a weird time too.
0: I mean, it was right before not right before, but six months before nine 11. And, you know, there, and you know, like I said, they, I got held up at the Canadian border earlier that year, like January 1st for like, three or four hours, there was a big brushback because of there was some like threat of a Russian suitcase bomb going through uh, someone's uh, the trunk of someone's car. So they thoroughly inspected every car. And I was like waiting at the border in line for like three or four hours. So there's a reason why we had security like that in 2001.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. But it it just, it's a little jarring when you look at the way the production versus today versus back then. You know, obviously, there's the good things like you don't have the herky-jerky in-and-out cameras back then that you do now. But then there's some other things like the, the signs being so prominent. I mean, I've never seen so many signs with somebody's name and an arrow pointing down. I'm like sitting there thinking, really? That's that's what you brought to the arena? <laughs> And it was like everyone had a sign on, on raw on
0: SmackDown and on the pay-per-views.
1: Yeah. And if you're not, if you're not a kid, I just don't get that. I mean, I have no problem with kids bringing signs, but you know, I see some adults sitting there and their sign is either their name and an arrow pointing down or even worse, just a sign that says Steve Austin. (laughs) What what are you really accomplishing there? (laughs) Well, okay. You're a Steve Austin fan. Thanks for letting me know. I have
0: gone through my entire wrestling fandom uh, going to live events, starting when I was 13 years old, having never brought a single sign to the wrestling matches, baseball, football, all of it never brought a sign. So let's start with the first match. Um, the first match was actually non-televised. It was just incredible in X-Pac against Grand Max and Steve Blackman, I just want to throw in a, qu- a quick thing. Uh, Scott Taylor, where Scotty Too Hottie was out with a fake injury. Kurt Angle injured him during a Raw, uh, broke his ankle, whatever. Too Cool was so over with the WWF audience. And it's not on Peacock yet, but I'm assuming the 2000 and 2001 Raw's and SmackDown's are going to be on there probably before this thing even comes to the air. But go back and take a look, I'm talking to the audience here, on one of those shows, just how crazy over the too cool was and you you ask yourself
1: why it's like i don't know but they they were over like nuts because people people like to be a part of something that's why all the little chants that you can do back and forth the call and response are are so big whether it's a dx whether something is silly as everybody in the crowd going we the people if you remember that one people love that sort of thing And I think that too cool had a similar vibe to that with the whole little choreographed dance that they did. And then they put the sunglasses on Rikishi and people just respond in a Pavlovian fashion, if you will, to consistency and to sameness. They're like, they all just look at each other and go, Hey, I know that one. It's kind of like an SNL thing where with the recurring characters, Sometimes it's not even that they're really all that funny. People are just like, oh, I know that guy. And then they go and they do the catchphrase at work the next day. It's just something that people can share as a common bond between people, I think. I agree with that. And I think there's another element
0: to it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Can't Buy Me Love. It came out in like 86, 87. Tons of times. (laughs) Okay. And by the way, that was very much like the, my experience going to high school, (laughs) very reflective. The movie was about a kid who suddenly became popular and he's going to a dance and he does not know how to dance. So he puts on what he thinks is American bandstand, but it's really an African cultural show where they are doing by United States standards in the eighties, a very odd African dance. this guy, Watches this goes to his dance starts doing this bizarre African dance and people started doing it with him and all of a sudden the whole auditorium is doing this odd dance. I think that's what too cool was all about the WWF everything they
1: did at this point was cool so too cool was cool. Yeah, that, that that's a good point because, yeah, that was the theme of the movie is that because they thought he was cool, then they almost follow what he did. Yes. So, yeah, there's, there's a similarity, and that. that's, a, that's a good point. I like that analogy because I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> all right. First
0: match that we actually get to see, the dark match was not on WWE Network, is Chris Jericho defeats William Regal. These two had been going back and forth for a while. They did a vignette on Raw where Chris Jericho urinated in his tea and he drank it because it's 2001 WWE.
1: What did you think of this match? Well, first of all, Regal's facial expression when he drinks the tea is just second to none. Uh, Um, But there was a lot of good aspects to it. But like a lot of Chris Jericho matches, and I say this as somebody who considers Chris Jericho one of my absolute all-time favorites, there were some noticeable botches in it as well. There was a cross body out of the ring that was botched pretty bad. And then the finish itself was a minor botch, but where Regal wasn't quite in the right spot for the Lion Salt. So Jericho had to pick him up, body slam him in the right spot, and then do it. And as somebody who's seen a lot of Jericho matches, it stuck out to me like a sore thumb because I was like, oh, that's not how the Lion Salt's supposed to go. It's supposed to be super quick, off the ropes, boom, for the pin. But besides those minor quibbles, I thought it was really solid. Regal is a technician. He Everything he does looks good. It looks sharp. And Jericho brought a lot of energy. He was really over with the crowd. So, I mean, it was a solid opener. It got people into the show. I thought it was a good opener.
0: Chris Jericho, I, as you had stated, I think this was his first WrestleMania match. And it looked like the adrenaline was off the charts. Like I mean, Jericho was... Kind of overdoing everything, like you pointed out. Like it was almost like, whoa he went too fast and too far with that move.
1: Well, it wasn't his first WrestleMania because he did the triple with Benoit and Kurt Angle at WrestleMania oh, 2000. Right. But it did, it did seem like because he's and I don't agree with him on this, but in his book, Jericho said he was disappointed with that WrestleMania 2000 match. So I think there may be something to what you're saying about trying to prove the that he could do better. But again, I really felt like he, I mean, especially the cross body. I mean, he just flew way over where he was supposed to. So I i i, I think there was some sloppiness in that. Yeah, there was. It was. Overall, it was a good match.
0: Unlike you, Chris Jericho is one of my all-time favorites. He has been for about the past 10, 15 years. I've always liked him. And I don't know why I haven't read his second book. I own it. I just haven't gotten around to reading it. I read his first book twice. It was one of the best wrestling books out there.
1: I've read three of his books. I guess there's a fourth one. that's like a self-help book. I'm not touching that one. <laughs> but his second book is a bit too much Fozzie for me. Um, oh. It gets a lot more into that than the wrestling. It's kind of like a 50-50 thing. The wrestling stuff's interesting. I'm not so much interested in the Fozzy stuff. But... The third book is actually pretty solid because it uh, went over a period of time where I wasn't watching WWE. So it was kind of interesting to hear his new character that he came back with, which was very much different than the goofy Jericho that he'd been before he left for three years or so. Oh, I
0: mean, that that Jericho character of like 2007, 2008, if I had become a professional wrestler, that would have been my character. I already had that. Visualized before Chris brought it out there And it was really cool to see Because I'm like wow that's
1: what I would have done Yeah it was a, I've, I've gone back and seen some of that stuff And that feud with Shawn Michaels is, is Second to none And as a little aside That was until more recently When they've kind of relaxed it slightly That uh, match between Michaels and Jericho was the last Time that they did blood In uh, WWE for many years Unless it was Hardway
0: yeah and in you know what when they first did the no blood edict uh in 86 or 87 you know obviously as a hardcore nwa style fan i was like ah this is ridiculous but they were ahead of their time there should have been a a stop on it the nwa did the right thing when they instituted no blood in like 89 or 90 and now forget about it i mean you you know i know they occasionally have a hard way accident. And the referee immediately puts on, you know, uh, plastic gloves. But you can't, you cannot have juicing in, in today's environment.
1: I mean, you they do in AEW, but yeah, you obviously didn't catch the Thunder Rosa versus uh, Britt Baker match this past Wednesday.
0: <laughs> no, I I will see it. And just my my joke going around. We're in the middle of the uh, first round of the NCAA basketball tournament. My my bracket looks like Britt Baker's face after that match.
1: I, I had Ohio state in the finals, so <laughs> I had them the final four. I'm with you. Yeah. You know, what's an interesting thing I didn't mention too, is Heyman, this being his first WrestleMania and really his, I think his first pay-per-view overall, he may have done the February one, but it was such a breath of fresh air for me to hear Heyman after listening to Lawler go on about puppies and act like a overactive little 15 year old for four years. I really liked Jerry Lawler and the new generation era, but once they hit 97 and the shackles were off, so to speak on how he could announce, I was not a fan and I love the Heyman Jr. Mix that they had, and how they played off each other. You know, we talked about, you know, so much
0: was going on. This is another huge thing that was going on. Jerry Lawler who had been the voice of Raw, certainly since, you know, the Attitude Era had started, all of a sudden, you know, they, the WWF lets go of his wife, the cat, and Jerry Lawler walks out with her. And, you know, it amazes me that they couldn't get something done. But Jerry Lawler's departure from Raw was also a huge deal. And this was Paul Heyman's first pay-per-view.
1: Yeah, and I thought I thought he did great. I mean, he used to be an announcer in uh, WCW as well, and I always liked him. I just thought he brought a different vibe, and I thought he brought a seriousness to it that I preferred to Lawler's constant jokes and just being so pervy about everything.
0: He was a little pervy, and a lot of his stuff was right out of the Henny Youngman joke book, and... and- I liked Lawler, but I agree with you. Heyman was definitely a breath of fresh air, not only on Raw, but on the pay-per-views.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But for many people, that was also seeing Heyman was the end of ECW. They were, yes. okay, well, it's not. Um, Francine actually spoke on that from Francine that used to work as a uh, valet in uh, ECW. She said they all had believed that Heyman was going to find him a deal, find him a deal. You know, they drank the Kool-Aid, so they, they had that faith in him. And then they saw him on, show up on uh, WWE TV, and then they all went, well, okay, I guess it's over now.
0: That Dawn Marie said the exact same thing. You know, she thought it was coming back. She thought Paulie was going to get them a new TV outlet. that they, they were just on hiatus. And as soon as she saw him on Raw, it's like, well, it's over.
1: Well, he said he was going to be out in L.A. doing that, and then it turned out he was filming Rollerball.
0: he may have been doing a little something on the side, looking for something on the side. I mean, ECW was his dream, but I also know that, you know, you get burned out very quickly when you're running a wrestling promotion. And Heyman had been running that thing since 95 or 96 when Alfonso, not Alfonso, Todd Gordon left.
1: Yeah, I mean, he'd been booking it all the way since 93 when Eddie Gilbert first left. But 95, Todd Gordon pretty much just became an on-screen character.
0: Yeah. And so Heyman
1: was doing it all. And he was burnt out as could be that, by that point. Because he was never a good businessman. Let's be honest about that. He, yeah. you, you, we've all heard the horror stories. So,
0: I mean, and, and not to get too far away from WrestleMania X7. But, I mean, it was really sad what happened with Eddie and Paul. They were best friends. And each one, Eddie thought that paulie had taken you know gotten in todd gordon's ear and had stolen his booking job and eddie i don't think eddie and paul ever spoke again
1: uh yeah i they had a big falling out and eddie saw things differently he saw it as being memphis north you know he was going to recreate his hot stuff international he was going to do the whole bit and i think todd gordon just Heyman had a completely different way of going and it just spoke to gordon and So there was also some Eddie Gilbert demons going on, if you will, from what I understand that were involved. And so it just became easier for Todd to deal with Paul Heyman than it did to deal with Eddie Gilbert. I mean, I I personally
0: one night saw the Eddie Gilbert demons and it was kind of funny. I'm not going to talk about on the show, but um, I mean, it was kind of sad because we broke into, you know, Paulie had his faction of people who believed the story that, hey, Todd Gordon was getting rid of Eddie Gilbert one way or the other, and there are people in Eddie Gilbert's corner who think that Paulie stole, totally stole his job out from underneath him. So now not only did we have Eddie on in one corner, Paulie in the other, former best friends, former roommates, but you've got people lining up behind them. And I'm sure the truth, like in wrestling, is
1: always somewhere in the middle.
0: You know what? I am inclined to think that Todd Gordon was going to get rid of Eddie Gilbert because I I liked Eddie, he's a good guy, um but if you watch those old ECW shows, a they're not not only are they not very good, but they're all so Eddie Gilbert centric. He was Dusty Rhodes North. That's the end of it.
1: I haven't watched a lot of of the pre-Hayman. I always on my rewatch, I've always started with the uh, when Hayman took over the booking. So My uh, exposure to the Eddie days is uh, very limited. Okay. Now, I remember getting
0: tapes uh, when Paulie took over and being like, okay, wow, this is some revolutionary stuff here. But back to WrestleMania X7, the next match, Taz and the APA, Bradshaw and Farouk, uh, with Jacqueline in their corner, defeated (sighs) right to censor, which I'm sure Vince (laughs) McMahon directly was in, in charge of, no, we're doing this, pal. Bull Buchanan, the Godfather and Val Venus kind of a throwaway match. One, I I had two quick observations. Number one, I do not like the, who would win in a shoot discussions because it doesn't matter. It's wrestling is predetermined. It doesn't matter who's tougher than who it's like asking who would win a round of golf in my opinion. But at the same time, man, I mean, that tag team of Layfield, Taz and Simmons, three guys you would not want to mess with
1: yeah i mean it was a throwaway match it was designed just jbl was the texas guy let's let him get the pinfall and mm-hmm. although i thought the crowd response at least on the dvd you never know with the the sound mix on those things but i thought the uh crowd response was kind of tepid to be honest but i agree with you on the uh the shoot fight stuff i've always when people start talking about man that harley race that haku that's nice but well, I, I don't Worry about whether Chris Evans or Robert Dowdy Jr. or Christopher Hemsworth or however people are playing superheroes these days can win a fight. It's what you see on screen. Yeah. And that's, being, that's the way it is in the ring.
0: Yeah. And being able to, as, as Bill Watts says, turn a, a bar into a parking lot, that, that's great, but it doesn't draw a dime.
1: I've always thought it was funny that people who tend to be the most dismissive of the marks, if you will, are often people who are the most. Markish for these so-called tough guys.
0: Oh, yeah. That that has been my observation over over 30 years. Another thing that I noticed watching this match, I'm like, wow, Ron Simmons looks old. And Ron was older than I realized. For some reason, I thought he was in like his mid late 30s. No way. He's
1: 43 here. Oh, wow. I know. I did not realize. Well, I mean, I guess with football and stuff, he got a little later start. But yeah, I didn't realize he was that old either.
0: No, and for some reason, I have a false memory that he was playing at Florida State in like '82, '83. He was an All-American '79, '80. So that's where I got my mis-
1: miscalculation. Yeah, I always thought the the RTC was an easy heel group. You know, you weren't get a main event with them, but it was an easy way to get some booze on the crowd, let the faces win, feel good moment, and it didn't uh, it didn't hurt anything. And Vince got to do his little guffaws in the back the way that Vince does because, boy, he's sticking it to that uh, PTC, the real group that was going around making life miserable for WWF.
0: Oh, I I, I forgot. I for, was thinking, I remembered he was sticking it to a particular group, but I forgot it was the PTC that he turned into the RTC. Good old Vince, man. You got to love him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next match, we have Kane. Versus Raven versus the Big Show. I mean, it's a triple threat hardcore match.
1: Any thoughts on this match? It's very much a product of the time, you know, that hardcore style. Walk yeah. around, hit each other with weapon. Walk around, hit each other with weapon. I did get a kick out of Raven's cart of weapons that he brought, most of which didn't get used. Like there was a Frankenstein head in it and <laughs> some other stuff. But you know, what really struck me though was because you know the story, Big Show disappeared relatively soon after this to go to a fat farm i think to lose weight and jr made a comment when he came out about how he had unlimited potential but you can't live off that you've got to get it done i was like "Ooh, shoot comment <laughs> so i mean it's funny that
0: 20 years later or not he's with aaw now so let's say 19 years later he was still with that company because they were trying to get rid of him at this point. They were trying to get him to quit. Uh, he had signed a 10-year, $1 million per year contract, which is not very much now, but it was a lot then. And they were actively trying to get rid of him.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was expensive, and he didn't turn out to be, at that point, a main eventer at all. And part of that you can blame on Big Show. Part of that you can blow, you can um, blame on Vince for maybe not booking him as strong as they should have when he first came in. But that was the time period where Vince had to show everybody who came over from WCW that uh, they weren't all that great, knock them down a peg or two, and then rebuild them. He did it with Jericho, too. Jericho came in hot, and after a couple months, they are like, well, you can't work the WWF style, so here, you go hang out with Bob Holly in China for a while. And then it, he got rebuilt after that. And that's that's just Vince being Vince.
0: Well, while we're on the subject, I've always believed that Chris Jericho was held back because he was too much like Triple H and Triple H saw him as either Triple H saw him as a threat or those around Triple H saw Jericho as a threat to Triple H. Vince McMahon's soon-to-be-real-life son-in-law. And they booked Chris Jericho to look like an idiot. I, I will always believe that someone went either out, out of their way to bury Jericho around this time.
1: That's that's a common I've that's a common uh, thing I've seen that from a lot of people. And I mean, it certainly wouldn't surprise me because there's ample evidence from people who've talked about Triple H and Shawn Michaels trying to bury The Rock early on obviously he doesn't have a lot of similarities to triple H, but they saw that same threat to their spots at the time with the rock as well. And they were giving him, you know, bad advice on purpose to try and get him heat in the back and things like that. And I think there was some, some of that similar with Jericho, whereas rather than giving him bad advice, they just pretended there was heat and started spreading rumors about Jericho. And so next thing you know, he's getting stuck working with triple H's little buddy X-Pac and being told, to follow orders because he doesn't know how to work the WWF style, which I thought was just ridiculous.
0: Oh, it was, and it, that exploded in 2001. As soon as someone like Rob Van Dam got over everyone in the locker room was like, Oh, he doesn't know how to work our style. Well, maybe that's one reason why he's over. And as far as triple H and Michaels go, I mean, they had an excellent built in program in 1998, ready to go with Owen Hart, who, you know, you know, Bret Hart's brother, and we all know what happened in Montreal and triple H and Shawn Michaels just would not go along with it. And Vince, Vince always let Michaels do whatever he wanted. And pretty soon he'd be letting triple H do whatever he wanted.
1: Shawn triple H, they're up there with Hulk Hogan is the master politicians of modern wrestling. They got in the ears of the right people and they killed pushes and they did whatever they wanted to do backstage. And, that kept him on top for a while. Michaels kind of came back a little more humble um, in his return from his four-and-a-half-year absence, but from around 94 to when he left, I mean, my gosh, that that guy was balking at jobbing to Austin when he knew he couldn't even work.
0: No, and you know, I mean, Michaels, there, there are horror stories about Shawn Michaels in the 90s, but I'll keep it positive. Supposedly he's, t- he totally turned it around a long time ago and he's now he's a much nicer guy. So that that's a good thing. Yeah. I've heard nothing but good stuff about him since he came back. I, All right. So, but, shot. yeah, <laughs> but like I said, I've heard horror stories. All right. So next match, Eddie Gill, Eddie Guerrero, excuse me, over test, Uh singles match for the European championship. They gave
1: this eight and a half minutes, any thoughts on this match for me, Brad? Just a couple. First thing is, this was the only thing on the show that I was like, boy, I don't remember that at all. And then the second was there was a uh, interesting spot where Tess was supposed to get caught in the ropes, but then he literally couldn't get out. And it looked like Eddie had to kind of assist him to get his foot caught uh, out of the ropes. But it, it was a simple throwaway match. It got over Guerrero being the heel. Got Malenko and Saturn as the radicals involved to keep them somewhat busy. And, you know, Eddie was his normal top-notch self. So it wasn't a bad match or anything. It was just kind of forgettable.
0: Yeah, the one thing I, re- I remembered about this match, and it was confirmed while I was watching this, I mean, Eddie Guerrero was so awesome, and he saved his best performances for the big shows. I mean, he was, he was incredible in the ring.
1: He was, there was a crispness to, to, to his work. And there also, there's a lot of guys that are crisp in the ring, but they don't always have the best timing. And then there's guys that aren't that crisp, but have amazing timing. Hulk Hogan being a good example of somebody who knows timing, but Mm -hmm. isn't particularly crisp. I thought Eddie Guerrero combined the two. I thought he, he really knew how to read the crowd and time his moves, his comebacks his reactions very well to the crowd which is a skill that's kind of lost in today's everything is scripted wrestling world and he combined that with just amazing technical prowess so it, he was absolutely one of the top 5 in ring performers at that time in my opinion
0: uh, he he was in my opinion as well and You know, WCW did not know what to do with him. I I think as soon as they make someone a cruiserweight, you're putting them in a division where it's like, okay, no, right there when you when you're labeled cruiserweight, you're not getting over. And Vince McMahon, you know, took Eddie Guerrero in, you know, Chris Benoit, a couple of other guys, and he pushed them. And Eddie Guerrero became world's champion in WWF, which was amazing to me at the time because he's he's not a big guy like Hogan.
1: But yeah, but I mean, he, he deserved it. I mean, he was the crowd responses for him when he became champion on that whole run into 2004 were spectacular. You couldn't just say that he was a worker, you know, that he was, you couldn't just talk about his technical aspects. You, he was a complete package by that point. He could bring it on the promo. He had the charisma and he had the crowd eating out of his hand. Yeah. The match itself, like after watching,
0: you know, the SmackDowns and Raws, I mean, Chris Benoit had just turned on Eddie and that group, the radicals. And then you put Eddie in a match that has nothing to do with
1: Benoit and vice versa. That, that was some odd booking. And I think it had to do with a couple of things. One, I think they really wanted Benoit Kurt angle to steal the show Two, Kurt angle needed something to do because he was the champion, but they had to get to rock and Austin. So they took the belt off of angle at no way out and gave it to rock and then angle didn't have a whole lot to do so they're like well if they've got nothing to do why don't we put two of the absolute best workers we have in the ring together let's let them have it and then they just concocted the little he tapped out when it wasn't a real match storyline to to further it and i they ended up running um with that for a long time uh, it was one of the few WrestleMania matches that wasn't a blow-off. It was actually the first in the series, and that feud continued on going into the next couple of months.
0: You know, that was a really good point you made about Angle. I did not think about that because Angle, you know, was one of their top guys. He was a rising star, and you needed for something for him to do. Like, you had to make that a priority, That's it's a really good point on your part.
1: Yeah, I mean, he did. He got that. He lost that belt, and... There was two ways to go at that point, and you could, because Triple H was the other person that after beating Austin in No Way Out, there was kind of like, okay, what do we do with him? Because logically, if there wasn't a Rock Austin thing, you would say, well, Triple H should be getting a title shot, which they, of course, built into the storyline with The Undertaker. Mm-hmm. So you could do Angle versus Triple H, but one of them would have to turn face or you do heel versus heel, or you could do what they did, which was find a couple of people that were... Involved in other things. The Undertaker had been involved with Kane and Big Show and some stuff, and they just kind of pulled him out of it and moved him over to Triple H. And Angle had been involved as being champ, and Benoit had been with the Radicals, and they moved that out and put that together. So it was kind of a late build with those, but I I really thought in both cases they did a nice job of, of telling a story.
0: No, I, I totally agree with you. My, my my last comment on this match, Perry Saturn was out there with a lugs t shirt, L-U-G-Z. And man, that was that was a trip in the time machine for me. <laughs>
1: Perry Saturn. There was a guy who was just a massive disappointment in uh WWE when he came over. He he did nothing as as one of the radicals, really. Uh, no. He was I, just I a goofball.
0: Yeah, and they booked him that way. The eliminators, uh Perry Saturn and John Cronus were one of the all-time great underrated tag teams. And I'm glad Saturn got his moment in the sun, but it it just, you know, it never turned into what I thought it could have turned into for him.
1: No. And he was, he was a solid worker, but it just, even in WCW, once he got out of the flock, they did the same thing with him. They turned him into this goofy character. He's had a mop and yeah. And and in, in WCW, he was doing the decided he was going to wear a, a skirt and do a goth thing. And, it just, it, it's hard to see somebody doing those things in any kind of a larger role in the company, any kind of bigger angles or matches you're, you're, you're kind of, um, condemning yourself to the, the bottom of the car, you know, speak this jump just jumped into my head.
0: I was watching ECW, I think it was in 1995 and they did an angle where, it, uh, Francine took a pair of scissors and cut his hair. And he goes back into the locker room and he takes a razor and he shaves his head right in front of the camera, just saying, Francine, go ahead. I don't care about my hair. And at the time I'm like, dude, you're throwing away money because you could make money on a hair match. And I think I was behind the times. This was probably closer to 96 when like Steve Austin's look was over, you know, like with the Jay Buhner look. And, you know, it's like no sense in doing a hair match, but I was a little bit, it was a cool angle. And it showed that I was a little bit
1: behind the times at, at that point. Well, even if you don't do a hair match, you could still get some heat out of it where he's at least upset about it. I mean, if you just no sell it, you kind of kill the, the match going forward that you, know, I, you say, oh, I'm going to have a match. But if there's no heat for saying your, your valet shaved my head, I'm going to get revenge. What's the point of the match? Uh yeah, very true. I mean, I, I did think it was
0: a very bad thing to do. dude
1: like this just week. say, Hey, and you want to cut my hair here John, as a razor. Nah, right, right on camera like wow, this guy's pretty bad. I include I like Saturn.
0: McMahon that's true. McMahon I mean, it fit, violence,
1: the, it fit the with a couple of the McMahon goes. You create personas for each person. McMahon's, so I get that. I get that. TLC tag team carnage, the beloved gimmick
0: battle royal, the first Undertaker Triple H WrestleMania match. And, of course, the main event, filled with all kinds of swerves, between Steve Austin and The Rock. Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I'm your producer, Lou Kippelman, and this concludes our podcast day.